Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. It's a joy and an honor to have you watching this video, and I'm very honored to be able to make it for you. And if you are a teacher, then I also want to say just thank you uh, for your service and thank you for your diligence, and may the Lord bless you. And if you're watching this because you had to miss Sunday school, then I pray this will be a blessing to you as you keep up with your class and what we're doing as a church. As you um, no doubt know, we have been going through for about the last year the New City Catechism, and we're going to finish that up this month. 52 uh, questions and answers that we uh, finally made it through. We took a little break in January, but now we're going to pick up and we're going to finish it up. And the question that we're answering today is one that maybe on the surface seems uh, fairly easy. It's where is Christ now? Where is Christ now? And um, the reason we talk about this is because there are far too many people, probably not you, but far too many people that would say, where is Jesus now? Oh, he's in my heart. And we have so emphasized that. And a lot of places and a lot of people and a lot of churches teach that the way you get saved is by asking Jesus into your heart. But I would challenge you to go through the verses about salvation in the Bible and um, see if that is actually what the gospel is. Uh, it's much more than that. Now, there are some verses where uh, the Lord Jesus says that he and the Father will come and make their home in our heart. So I understand that. And I understand where people are coming from. But we need to understand that God, because he is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in their nature and attributes, that God sent His Spirit to live within us, the Holy Spirit, and that's how Jesus dwells in us. But there's more to the story and more uh, to it than that, and we're going to look at that today. Now, the answer that they give to us is, Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling uh, his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. Now that's a little bit different and we need to understand that when Jesus died, he died physically. The whole reason that we celebrated at Christmas, the incarnation or the putting on of flesh of Jesus, uh, it's Philippians chapter two. He emptied himself of all of the rights, the privileges, the prerogatives that he had as God. And he humbled himself and limited himself or uh, the doctrine is called the doctrine of kenosis. That's a Greek word that means emptying. And he emptied himself of all that he had and it had for eternity past and uh, limited himself by going into a virgin's womb. And there was a gestation period of nine months and then he is born as a uh, helpless baby. And he has to grow. And for the first time, God is dependent upon someone else. Now, as he does that, he's doing that as a human though not really in his uh, godliness, but in his humanity. 
And remember, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And so everything that is true about God was still true of him. He just chose not to use it. He had infinite power that he never used while he was on earth. He could have been all-knowing and omnipresent while he was on earth, but he chose not to be. He locked himself into a body. He had to learn. He had to grow all of those things like a normal child would do. And he grew to adulthood, lived a perfect and sinless life, but his flesh was also necessary so that he could be nailed to a cross and die for our sins. Had he remained in the spirit, then uh, you never could have nailed him to a cross. Had he remained omnipresent everywhere, you never could have nailed him to a cross. And so he surrenders himself to the will of the Father and also even to human authority. No one could have nailed him to a cross unless he allowed it. In fact, he actually said that uh, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. This is a willing thing that the Lord did, and he did that for us. But in the same way, when they took that body off of the cross after he died and they laid him in the tomb, then on the third day, you remember, he rose from the dead. But that was not just a spirit that rose from the dead. It was not just a vision that the disciples saw. In fact, Jesus even took a piece of fish and ate it. Spirits don't eat like that. He even said, touch me, touch me and uh, feel the nail prints in my hand, he said to Thomas. And uh, why is that? Because when he arose, his body was different, but it is still a human body of flesh and bone, a glorified body. And 40 days later, he ascended bodily into the presence of his father to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so today... As uh, we pray, the Apostle Paul told us there is one mediator between God and man. And why would he emphasize this? The man, Christ Jesus. Because in heaven today, there is somebody with their uh, body, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the man, the human, Christ Jesus. And that's why he has sympathy for us. That's why he understands us. That's why he defends us and stands up for us against the accusation of the enemy because he has been here and he is one of us. And one day we're going to be like him. And we're going to have, instead of this mortal decaying uh, body that we're in now, this body of flesh, this body of sin, we're going to be raised up one day to have a body like Christ, a glorified body that is no longer tainted by sin. And that is, uh, as we sing in the song, what a glorious day that will be, right? And uh, we'll be free from all of the aches and pains and trials, and even from death itself and from grieving and sorrow, all of the things that are entailed with being in an earthly body here on earth. We're going to be free from that one of these days as Jesus, the Son of God, is now. Now, our scripture that we want to uh, look at that they've given us is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And I'd invite you to take a copy of God's word and look along with me. And let's feed and nourish our souls 
and um, inform our minds and get blessed by the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, eternal Word of God. This is God speaking to us. He, meaning the Father, raised him, meaning Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That is a uh, very important and very powerful and very uh, telling scripture that we have here. How was Jesus raised? He was raised by the power of the Father. Now, an interesting note there, you'll find as you look through the scripture, every person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were involved in the resurrection of Christ. This one here points to what the Father did. But don't forget, Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. And then you also read in Romans, I believe it's the eighth chapter, that tells us about the Holy Spirit that we received at salvation as being the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, here it's emphasized this is according to the will, the plan, the power, and the purpose of the Father, as are all things. And he raised up Jesus from the dead. Death could not hold him. Death could not defeat him. There's an interesting thing in the uh, second chapter of Acts at the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the apostle Peter begins to give that magnificent sermon where 3,000 souls were saved, he makes a statement in there that Jesus was raised from the dead and I'm paraphrasing a little here, because it was not possible for him to be held by the pains of death. And that word held, if you do a word study on that, it means to guard or seize as a prisoner. In other words, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, there was an all-out order from hell to make sure that he did not rise from the dead. And so the Romans put the stone in front of the tomb and they sealed it. And uh, that seal, if it were broken by anyone, that would mean they would be executed by the Roman government. There were two soldiers. These were soldiers that were trained to defend their ground. In fact, Roman soldiers were trained to defend a four foot square of ground where they would stand and uh, that's why they were so successful. They would defend that ground before they would ever march on. And these were the soldiers that are at the, uh, the tomb. And so it was sealed by Rome and by Pilate. But also, if you think about what Peter said, it was impossible for him to be held by death, to be seized and guarded as a prisoner. Think about the spiritual side of that. How many demons did Satan assign there to make sure that the resurrection did not take place? Maybe he was even personally present. I don't know. But what I do know is simply this. Death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him from rising again. That's out of a song that we sing called Glorious Day. Certainly true. The devil himself could not prevent the resurrection. The demons of hell, however many of them were there, could not stop the resurrection because Jesus was raised 
by the plan and by the power of the Father. And it says that the Father not only raised him from the dead, but 40 days later when Jesus ascended bodily, the Father welcomed him into heaven. Can you imagine what a celebration that was? I heard a preacher say one time, quoting from the Psalms, that it says uh, uh, there and uh, other places make reference to this too, that it was Jesus they were speaking of when they said, open wide, O ancient gates, and let the king of glory in. And the cry came out from heaven, who is this king of glory? And the response is, the Lord strong and mighty in battle is he. And those gates opened and the trumpet sounded and the angels shouted. And Jesus was welcomed in as the conquering hero, the conquering general, the one who had overcome sin and death and hell and the grave. And as he is welcomed into heaven by his father, his father says to his son, set at my right hand and uh, until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, in the Middle East, they don't show the soles of their feet. In fact, whether it's Jewish or Arab culture, it's kind of the same thing, especially in ancient times. To be under someone's foot was not only to be conquered, but it was to be greatly insulted. In fact, um, when U.S. forces... Uh, conquered Iraq, and you remember the Iraqi people were tearing down statues of Saddam Hussein. Did you notice that when his statue would fall, they would take their sandals off and they would hit the statue, especially in Saddam's face, with the bottom side of their sandals? But that's the biggest insult that they could give to him. It's considered rude in that part of the world to uh, show the sole of your foot. They would never sit like a lot of men do where we cross our legs and have the sole of our foot visible. They would never, ever do that. And that is the implication when the Lord is seated at the right hand of God the Father, He is seated there and His enemies are under the sole of His feet. It means He has dominion and authority and it also is an insult unto them they think that they are so great and so mighty, and yet their authority has been given to them by Christ, and it is a limited, temporary authority, and uh, they are nothing more than a footstool for the Lord Jesus to uh, trample on. And so, uh, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, those are words for kings, and there are also words that are used sometimes even in the spiritual realm for the demons of hell. Jesus is above all of those things. And notice, even above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. The most powerful name, the name of Jesus, the name of authority. That name is greater than any other name that existed when Paul wrote this for us or anything he said in the age to come. For time and eternity, Jesus' name dominates everything. He's been given the name, Philippians 2 tells us, that is exalted above every other name. And to name somebody in the days in which the Bible was written, you could do something like, you may have seen an old movie 
where somebody, a policeman, is chasing a bad guy and they say, stop in the name of the law. The idea of the name of the law means the law has the authority to control you, to rule over you, and to command you to stop. It also conveys the idea of, of will. When we pray in Jesus' name, that's not just a formula that we use. It means that um, if I close my prayer and I say, I pray this in Jesus' name, it would mean that it's as if Jesus himself would sign this document that is called my prayer. If I wrote my prayer down and Jesus signed it, he would be signing off on my prayer. It meant it was according to his will. It had his backing and his authority on that. That's why a signature is so important in our world today, isn't it? That's the clue. That's why we notarize signatures for a will or a car title or something else to authenticate that that signature is real and the document is conveying our will. And that's what all of this means. Jesus has the authority in his name that his will is going to be done and whatever happens has to be approved by him. So I want you to think about the world that we're living in. From our standpoint, it looks chaotic. From his standpoint, he's signing off on it, saying this is exactly what is supposed to happen to bring us to the point where all prophecy in the Bible is fulfilled and that Jesus Christ himself will return at exactly the day and the hour that has been chosen for him by the Father, and he will come back as the conquering king. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's what we have uh, talked about, and that's what this catechism answers for us. This is a glorious and wonderful thing, and however long it is that we have lived, we know this, we are closer to the return and the rule and the reign of Christ than ever before. So he has been raised bodily, he physically and spiritually conquered death and he disarmed the enemy when he did so. Where did he get his power? Where did he get his might? Well, of course, it's conveyed upon him because of who he is. And it also is conveyed upon him by his father. But also, as you read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, I love this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Look at the world today. And what is the one thing that every human has in common? We're sinners and we're going to die because of our sin. And when you look at lost humanity, they are terrified of death. Now, full disclosure here, I don't look forward to dying. And by that, I mean the process of dying. I don't want to get old. I don't want to get feeble. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to have pain or anything like that, right? But the idea of death for the Christian means going out of this life 
into the presence of Jesus, into heaven, the place that is prepared for us. And uh, that is kind of an exciting thing to think about. Now, what is it that gets us to that point to where we're not afraid of death? And the writer of Hebrews said that that was the devil's ultimate weapon to threaten people with death, to make them afraid of death. And they were enslaved to all of that. And that's why humanity tries to look young, feel young, be young, and why we worship youth in this culture. Why is that? Because they're terrified of getting old and they're terrified of dying. And rightly so, because the only thing that awaits them is uh, their next conscious moment being in hell and then later at the great white throne judgment being cast into the lake of fire by the Lord. But did you notice that Jesus took the devil's weapon away from him. And that's why he can't wave that over the hand of the Christian. This is why the apostle Paul would die rather than deny his faith. This is why the martyrs would die for their faith. This is why people all around the world today are sitting in prisons and will not deny the Lord because God has given them grace and strength and they're not afraid to die Because they said, as one man did when a gun was pointed to his head, sudden death, sudden glory. And so we're not afraid of death because death has been conquered. Again, in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Look at this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, Jesus made a fool of all of those who tried to command him. Pilate was a fool for thinking he had authority over Christ. Herod was a fool for thinking he had authority over Christ. Caesar was a fool for thinking he had authority over Christ. But so were the chief priests. So were the Pharisees. So were the Sadducees. So were all of those who were involved in the crucifixion of Christ as well as the devil and his demons. Because what did they do when they crucified him? They may have walked away saying, good, we finally done away with him. But they didn't do away with him because this was all according to the plan of the Father, fulfilling prophecies like in the Psalms and Isaiah 53. And this is all done, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, according to the predetermined counsel of God. In other words, all they did was become unwilling servants of God when they crucified Christ. And he triumphed over them and he embarrassed them and put them to shame by rising from the dead on the third day saying, you have no dominion over me. And they were disarmed by all of that. Man, that'd make an Episcopalian shout, wouldn't it? That's an exciting thing to know that we live in that realm. Secondly, notice that Jesus has been seated. And the reason he has been seated is because, well, there's nothing else to do. 
He, gave, he arose from the dead. He was ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He put his own blood on the mercy seat, and then he sat down. Why? Because there's nothing else to do. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. When he did what needed to be done, offering himself as a sacrifice, that fulfilled any need for any other sacrifice. No other one is needed because Jesus paid the price for our sin in full. He'll never be put to an open shame again, forever exalted. And the word that we think about, set here, the father said, until your enemies become your footstool. And that word until tells us there's going to be a time when he gets up. And that time when he gets up is when it is time for him to come and gather his people unto himself. When it's that time for him to come back to earth and to rule and reign on the earth in the millennial kingdom of God. And so there's a time when he will not be seated. There's a time when he's going to mount that white horse and we're going to go with him back down to earth and he's going to rule and reign when he comes back. And uh, what a, a, again, what a glorious day that's going to be when he comes the second time, not subject to everything that was going on in his life the first time. This time he comes not to just come back to earth, but to take over as the conquering king. Think about John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, this is on the cross, he said, it is finished. As you know, that's the Greek word, tetelestai, fully paid. The debt is paid in full. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Why? There was no more reason to stay on the cross. The debt had been paid and he knew that. In the book of Hebrews, again, chapter 10, verse 11 and every priest stands daily in his service at the temple or further back at the tabernacle, um, serving repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. I mean, think about how many lambs, how many goats, how many bulls, how many of those offerings were offered. And they were offered, for those who truly believed, they were offered in faith, not in the power of the bull, not in the power of the goat, not in the power of the lamb, but in the power of the Messiah who would one day come and he would die for the guilty like that goat or lamb or bull died for the guilty sinner. Knowing that the lamb or the bull or the goat could not take away sin, but it pictured what Messiah would do someday in the future. Picking up again in the book of Hebrews. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, meaning himself, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. You know, the high priest would never go into the Holy of Holies and make the offering and then sit down and say, I think I'll stay here for a while. He didn't have that right or authority and he was afraid he would die. But when Christ enters into the real Holy of Holies in heaven, he offers the sacrifice and then he sets down because he has the right to be there and there's nothing else to be added 
to the sacrifice of Christ. And that's why any doctrine that promotes any kind of work in addition to what Christ did, whether it's baptism, excuse me, what Christ had done, whether it's baptism or good works or sacraments of the church or anything like that, is uh, blasphemous because the price has already been paid in full by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels, speaking of the superiority of Christ, has he ever said, sit at my right hand, here it is, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That, that's an amazing thing. He sat down because he was finished. And then number three, Jesus rules and has ultimate authority. He's not just sitting there doing nothing, but he is ruling actively and decisively and perfectly over the entire universe, which would include the earth and includes us. And no one has any authority except that comes from him. Whatever world ruler they may be, whatever president, senator, congressman, governor, whatever they may be, all of that authority comes from him. It's delegated to them and it is temporary. Praise God for that. He raises up kings, he raises up nations, and he also takes them down. Scriptures, Matthew 28, not verse 19 and 20, but the one preceding that, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's pretty much all of it, isn't it, has been given to me. And that's when he gives the commission. But don't pass by verse 18. It's all there given to him. He rules and he reigns even now. Ephesians 1, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's what the father did for the Lord Jesus. Not only head of the church, but over all things. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Did you notice right now? Jesus has authority over all of the kings on all of the earth. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 talks about him. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Who does that? God does that. The Lord Jesus does that. And so when we think about, did we elect President Biden and we might here in Oklahoma say, no, absolutely not. But neither did anyone else. He was placed there by God. We get what we deserve and we get what fulfills the purposes and the plan of God. As we read about the second coming of Christ in the latter days, perilous times will come. What are we upset about? Why are we surprised that the world is falling apart? Why are we surprised that society is falling apart? And why do we ever look to a human being as the answer? It's not. 
things are going to get worse as we get closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're assured of that. But understand, in the world we have tribulation, but Jesus said, be of good cheer. Well, how can I do that? Because Christ says, I have overcome the world. And we are named as overcomers in the book of Romans. So let's think like that and let's live by that. And let's consider the fact, too, that Jesus is returning. In Acts chapter 1, verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, and uh, the Greek would kind of emphasize this same Jesus, not a different one, not an ambassador, not an imposter, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's a promise. He is coming again. And he's going to come on his terms in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. And Jesus said to them, you have said so. This is when he's standing before um, the high priest. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man uh, seated in the right, on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what he was telling them? You think you have authority over me, but I am God. And you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. That's God the Father and in the clouds of glory. That makes a reference to back in the book of Daniel about God. He's also going to do it in his time. Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so we're not speeding up the coming of Christ, and neither are we delaying the coming of Christ. Some people kind of have the idea that if we do right and things are going well, the Lord goes, well, I guess I don't have to come now. I'll postpone it for a while. Not true. And other people think that maybe we are hastening the coming of Christ by the good things that we do, setting up a kingdom and fixing things here on earth. Not so. The date is already fixed. Only the Father knows the day or the hour. But also notice that when the Son comes, He is coming to conquer and to rule. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Another one of the reasons that I believe that there is an earthly reign of Christ. And so understanding this, where Jesus is, what he is doing, and what he is going to do is so much more than Jesus lives in my heart. No, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, actively overseeing all of this and getting ready for that day, which could be at any time when he returns. And understand that this gives believers comfort. We can look at the world around us and not fall apart because we understand what's really happening. It gives us security. We know we are held by him and we know that everything is under his rule. It gives us optimism. As you've heard it said, the world is getting dark, but it is gloriously dark. 
And it also gives us hope, that confident assurance that we are under his control, under his love, under his mercy, under his grace. And so think about that and think about how wonderful and how powerful and how glorious our Savior is the next time you watch the news, the next time you look on the internet, the next time you read a newspaper, if you still do, the next time you observe things happening in your family and the government and the world around us, just remember that all of these things, that it seems like the high tide is coming in. But I close with this. Remember, what's over your head is under his feet. So thank you for your time. And thank you for all that you do for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your giving to support our ministry here at the church. Thank you for all the things you pray about and that you volunteer for. And thank you for being a part of Graceway. We love you and we are excited to see what God is going to do in us and through us as uh, the future unfolds. And it'll all be for his glory and according to his plan. Look up, your redemption draws nigh.